You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. So this morning, we will be walking through the section on the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23, and a little bit later than that. Uh, We'll get as far as we can, but uh, we're going to be looking at what a a Passover meal was like in the first century, and what in some ways will also reference what it's become. Uh, Many of you have heard of the term the Seder, which wouldn't have been term used in the first century. It didn't develop into a Seder until later years, but uh, we're getting into the teaching without praying, without reading. So let's, um, let's open in prayer, and we'll be praying for Jess. I believe he's on the mend, and uh, he has every anticipation of being able to teach next week, which would be a good thing. So let's pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, looking into your word, we recognize that today it is not given the attention nor the respect that it is due and people use parts of it and don't think about what they're doing and and uh, in many ways just make a, a mockery of your word uh, flinging it about without reference without context and so this morning as we study we ask you to give us wisdom to give us discernment that we might honor you in the way that we dig into your word and allow it to be uh, paramount in our lives, to change us where we need to be changed, to confirm us where we need to be confirmed, and to give us the ability to walk in a manner that is wise and discerning in honoring you in all that we do. So this morning, as we look into this Lord's Supper, we just pray for insight, for special encouragement as we think about what the momentous actions that you, you did on this planet that have given us the Lord's Supper. And we'll thank you for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. So we're going to read 1 Corinthians 11. Um, We'll start at about verse 20 and read through the end of the chapter. 1 Corinthians 11, 20 through 34. Therefore, speaking to the Corinthians who thought they were celebrating the Lord's Supper, (laughs) when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and to drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. 
But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you may not come together for judgment. And the remaining matters I shall arrange when I come. One has to wonder what the remaining matters are if he's dealt with so many so far. But, so as we look at this section, how many of you, and, I, and you don't need to show your hands, but it's been something that I've struggled with, have celebrated the Lord's Supper not completely certain of all the immense implications of the Lord's Supper? Yeah. Well, guess what? That's part of human frailty interfacing with the infinite God. There's always going to be something about the triune God that we're not going to be able to fathom because He is infinite and we are not. And so as we look at the Lord's Supper, there is so much that happened in, that brief, in those brief three days that we commemorate once a month here. In some places, as we talked about earlier, some in the early days of the church, they celebrated it every day and at least weekly. Um, there is so much involved in that celebration that uh, I don't know that we can ever wrap our minds around all of it. And that's okay. That's okay. But uh, what we can understand uh, for each of us, given to us through the Word of God, um, especially in this section where Paul, this is actually the first time that it's detailed, other than when Christ gave it to us in, in, the, uh, in the synoptics and in John. And so we're going to start with verse 23. We finished up last week talking about um, the Corinthians coming together for what they were calling the Lord's Supper, but the rich quickly gobbling down their food so that the, the poor wouldn't get in their way. And, and the poor and others clicking up, upset with each other, not at all what the unity that was intended for the church to have and be brought by the resurrection, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul, in verse 22, he says, What? Have you not houses to eat and drink in? Eat at home. Come to the Lord's Supper prepared to share, prepared to spend time ministering to one another. For in Mark, Jesus said, I came to serve, not to be served. He came to be a servant of all. And that's the example Paul wanted the Corinthians to follow. And so he says, contrary to what he said in verse 2, where he says, Um... I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. In this verse, he says, I praise you not. And so now he's going to detail what the Lord's Supper is. And so he says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. So as Paul often did, he makes certain to note that this information that he was about to impart had been given to him directly from the Lord. Some scholars think Paul might have received this from one or more of the other apostles. Uh, while it is possible that 1 Corinthians might have been written before the Gospels, it's unlikely, very, it's just not true. Paul did not copy it from them. It's, he received this, as he said, directly from the Lord. For I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered to you. It would have been sometime after his Damascus Road conversion. In any event, this is the first biblical record of uh, the Lord's Supper, inst the inst detailing the institution of the Lord's Supper. Now, a couple of, couple of uh, points about the word received and delivered. In, in many New Testament documents, these words had serious legal implications. The word received comes from the concept 
and it, and it, and it attains a legal connotation uh, to accept or acknowledge uh, to an office to be discharged to, uh, by oral transmissions of the authors from whom the tradition proceeds. The idea in this particular case, contextually, is it assumes a legal connotation, something like the word, what we would, we would say to receive into evidence. When uh, a police department receives something, they have a formal chain of evidence that they follow, and they receive that information into evidence. It's chronicled, it's documented, it's written down. This is what Paul is talking about. It could also mean to receive into the record. For I received from the Lord. This is a serious form of reception. The same word, the same as uh, for the word delivered. Associated concepts for the word delivered would be phrases such as constructively delivered, or delivered in trust, or executed and delivered. Paul is carefully wording this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that the Corinthians will know what is coming. Not necessarily it's more careful than the rest of Scripture, but, but we're talking about the Lord's Supper here. And an institution that was being egregiously violated in the Corinthian church. So he's making sure that they, they would have known when they heard this read in front of them that he is constructively delivering to them what he received directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what was intended for the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> um, and he says to them, and, and the connotation, of course, is you need to quit fouling this up. The historical setting is the night before the crucifixion. Jesus and the apostles were celebrating the Passover meal, which is now superseded for Christians by the Lord's Supper. There is controversy over whether or not the meal was a Passover meal. I don't know why there would be, um, especially when you read the synoptics. But one of the things I've discovered as I've dealt with people who, who, who use Scripture, sometimes they, they read into it what they want it to say. And uh, that's a difficult thing for all of us. Sometimes we come to Scripture with a confirmation bias. We want, it to, we want it to confirm what we already think is true. What we really need to be doing is to looking at it contextually, locally, and contextually, biblically, from the entire book, what is God trying to say? And so um, the Passover meal... It's clear that Jesus and the disciples celebrated the meal in a manner that would be similar, if not exactly the same as a Passover meal would be celebrated. It was somewhat abbreviated compared to the tradition that has evolved over the millennia, the last 2,000 years. If you hear someone calling it a Seder, that would be incorrect. Uh, the Seder is a word that means order and was what was given to the celebration of the Passover meal in later centuries by Jewish scholars as they tried to develop a systematic method of celebrating this meal. What's the first thing you do? What's the second thing you do? What's the third thing you do? What's the fourth thing you do? When fifth and sixth and seventh. And we're going to go over that. It's very interesting. But <laughs> the synoptic gospels, back to this idea that there's a bit of controversy over, over the Passover meal, whether or not it was a Passover meal. Let's look at... Um, the Synoptic Gospels, uh, they clearly indicate that Passover was the meal they were celebrating that Thursday night, likely in 33 AD. Matthew chapter 26, 17 through 20. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now what do you think they were talking about? I would suggest the Passover. I won't give you a multiple choice guess list here. And he said... 
go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12 disciples. I almost said with the 12 detectives, like they were searching this out. Oh, talk about confirmation bias. Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 17. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And by the way... <coughs> As a comment there, in a city that was probably overrun by two million uh, people who were going to be celebrating the Passover, <coughs> this would have been a fairly easy person to spot because men didn't carry water. And so that's, that's one of the historical and anecdotal evidences of how Jesus would have been able to connect his disciples with the right person to get them into the right place at the right time, the upper room of a friend's house. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you to a large upper room furnished and ready, prepared for us there. The disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. And then in Luke chapter 22, verses 7 through 16. Then came the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, so that we may eat it. They said to him, Where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, When you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room which, in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. John's gospel indicates that the Passover was Friday night after Jesus was dead and buried. John 18, 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Seems like a, a difficult issue to reconcile, but it's really not, and it, it's an evidence of how things have evolved over the millennia up until the time of Jesus. The Passover was celebrated uh, when the Israelites were after the Exodus, when they left Egypt. That was... a many, many, many centuries before. The simplest explanation is the traditions that have developed. The working people, the Galileans and the Pharisees, counted the days from sunrise to sunrise. The Judeans and the Sadducees counted the days from sunset to sunset. The chronology for the week has Jesus entering the city on a Monday, the 10th Nisan in 33 AD. And every time I see that word, I think of a car, but... In 33 AD, the date of the lamb selection, for a Passover had to be celebrated in Jerusalem. As some might have alleged this was just another meal, they could have eaten in Bethany, but they couldn't because it was a Passover. Being of the working class, Jesus and his disciples would begin their preparations Thursday. They would have taken the lamb to the temple for the court, temple court for slaughter between 3 and 5 in the afternoon and brought it back to prepare the meal that evening. Much of this information comes from the Mishnah and from the Jewish scholar and historian Josephus. The following day, the Judeans and the Sadducees would begin their preparations, and this is what John was referring to in chapter 18. 
They would start the process Friday morning, culminating in the Passover meal Friday night. This interesting bit of cultural diversity provided the setting in which Jesus could easily fulfill the, the prophecy of the Passover lamb, which takes away the sins of the world. So at the time of the Passover meal, there would have been approximately, as I said, two million or more Jews in the city of Jerusalem. Having the Passover split into two days, as it had come to happen, would facilitate the massive number of sacrifices, uh, slaughtering, and the glut of travelers filling up the accommodations. So the scenario would have looked like this. Six days, Jesus was anointed in preparation for burial late Sunday afternoon. Then Monday, he enters Jerusalem as the king. Then on Thursday, Jesus and his disciples observed the first sanctioned Passover, Thursday after sunset. Friday, Jesus is sacrificed as the Lamb of God on the second sanctioned Passover, Friday afternoon. Saturday, the weekly Sabbath and the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then Sunday, the resurrection. The Passover meal that the average Jew celebrated in the time of Christ was quite a lengthy process. But I don't believe it's as lengthy as it is today. It was as lengthy as it is today. It was laden with tradition and special meaning, and, and I guess it has become even more so today. As I looked this up in the Jewish encyclopedias, there was pretty much agreement, quite a bit of agreement on how it was celebrated. Sometimes the, the, the order was a little bit different, but for the most part, we'll kind of quickly go through it. So on Nisan 10, they would select the lamb. A one-year-old unblemished male is chosen for the Passover by a member of the household. In AD 33, Nisan, fell, Nisan 10 fell on Palm Monday, the day that Jesus made his triumphal entry in Jerusalem. It's evident that he was presenting himself as the unblemished sacrifice for the nation on that day. The slaughter of lambs would not take place until Nisan 14, the second slaughter. Uh, the, the accommodating slaughter on Thursday was for the other working class, Friday, April 3rd, AD 33. Nisan 13, searching for 11. Usually the night before, the evening before the Passover meal was eaten, the head of the family, the paterfamilias, led his family through the house by candlelight, looking in nooks and crannies for any leaven in the house. No leaven was supposed to be in the home at that time. Not infrequently, Jews would sell their leaven to their Gentile neighbors and buy it back after the eight days had elapsed. At the end of the search, the father says, All leaven that is in my possession... That which I have seen and that which I have not seen, be it null, be it accounted as the dust of the earth. Then this Nisan 14, the foot washing. As guests and family members entered the home to celebrate the Passover, now get this, a servant or a slave would often be there to wash their feet. This would be the task of the lowest class of people. The fact that Jesus did this in John 13, even though he was the head of the family, if you will, symbolizes that he would what he would later do to for his disciples in Mark chapter 10 verses 40 verse 45 the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many and and embodies his principle that if anybody wants to be first they must be last and servant of all and the the fact that the Corinthians had let this lapse was remarkable to Paul frustrating irritating and so that's how he's, de he's dealing with this. All of this would have been in the minds of especially the Jewish families in Corinth. Then there was some non-ritual wine. <laughs> As I read through this, I wondered how you would get to the end of this meal and not be schlockered. <laughs> because there's a lot of wine involved. So I imagine it, it, they just take sips. I, I don't know. That's just, that's, that was for free. I just... I don't know how they got through it with so much wine and not being... Maybe back then the wine was a lot less alcoholic. I don't know. Uh, anyway, so before the ritual wine, they're permitted a drink of wine that has no religious significance. 
This, uh, the non-ritual wine is also allowed between the first and second cups of ritual wine and between the third, second and third cups. See what I'm talking about? So then there was the first hand washing. Once all the guests arrived, they performed the ritual hand washing that the Jews from antiquity have done from, from, for each meal, before every meal. And then the table setting. In front of each seat, four glasses for ritual wine, labeled as such. The non-ritual wine glass should not be on the table but should be given to guests after they arrive and after their feet are washed. One plate, cutlery, napkin, several candles, seating labels in place, so that, I don't know how they would label it back then, but there would be some way to know who sits where. The karaseth, which was the unleavened bread, the vegetables and vinegar, the carpus, should be all be on the table, uh, and as well the representative bottles of wine, which would be labeled or identified in some way. Then the reclining at table. The ancient Near Eastern custom of total relaxation, as one man said, was not too far from our modern couch potato with a remote control. Uh, they would l relax around a low table about 18 inches off the ground, sprawled out on pillows being served by the help. Then the seating was assigned, beginning with the head of the family at one end, the guests are to wrap around the table either from the oldest to the youngest or the most important to the least important. Um, and that would have all been assigned ahead of time. After this, once everyone's seated, the first cup. Four ritual cups of wine are used for the Passover. The Mishnah says that even the poorest man in Israel must drink the four ritual cups, even if it means selling all his possessions. The wine was red and warm, a custom that has continued to this day. The prayer is uttered over each cup, and the four verbs of Exodus 6, 6 through 7 are recited, one over each cup. It comes to mind to me that you wouldn't want to be starving when they had this meal, even even non-Christian families, just the Jewish families, because it's the ritual and the, the, uh, the historicity of the meal is far more important than the food itself, in, in a sense. All the recitations. So Exodus chapter 6, uh, where was I? After everyone is seated, the first prayer, which would be the Kiddush, or the prayer of sanctification, is uttered by the familius, the head of the family. And it's in Hebrew right here, and I'm going to translate the Hebrew for you. It's right underneath. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has created the fruit of the vine. And you, O Lord, our God, have given us festival days for joy, this feast of the unleavened bread, the time of your, our deliverance in remembrance of the departure from Egypt. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, who has kept us alive, sustained us, and enabled us to enjoy this season. The Corinthians should have seen the connection here that the Lord Jesus Christ's sacrifice keeps them brings them into the kingdom, keeps them, and saves them for their ability to even be able to, to, to partake of the simplest blessings of life. But they had lost that, and they were taking from one another. Then the first cup of ritual wine is poured, and the first verb of Exodus 6-7 is recited by the Father. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Now the wine can be drunk. After this cup, you may now drink a non-ritual wine, uh, until the second cup is served. The non-ritual wine may be of any of the previously mentioned non-ritual wines. I guess there was, a, there was a more information ahead of time, but there's a number of non-ritual wines that you could partake of. Or it may be the wine used for the first cup. Then the carpus, the bitter herbs and the first dipping. The head of the house dips bitter herbs, traditionally lettuce or celery, into salt water or vinegar. He dips the herbs together with the chief guest of honor, the person on his right, and then the bitter herbs are passed on down the table. What does that remind you of? When Jesus dipped the sop and gave it to who? Judas. Who, in this case, the chief guest of honor. 
Interesting. The Corinthians would have known about this as well, how he treated the man who was going to be responsible for his execution. After all partake of the carpus, all food is removed from the table. This heightens the interest of the evening, prompting the questions from the youngest son. So then the second cup is poured, but not yet drunk. So then the questions from the second, the youngest son, or the least significant person. <laughs> I would have been asking all the questions that night. Why is this night different from all other nights? On all other nights we eat leavened or unleavened bread, but this night only unleavened bread. Second question. On all other nights, we eat all kinds of herbs, but this night only bitter herbs. Why do we dip the herbs twice? Third question. On all other nights, we eat meat roasted, stewed, or boiled, but this night, why only roasted meat? And then the father would answer and give the entire history of Israel from Abram till Moses and the giving of the law. Now, that had to take some time. I imagine the same kind of time, maybe, that Jesus took walking on the road from Emmaus with those disciples. So then the father... Uh, then all food and wine is returned to the table, including the lamb. The father now explains the significance of the lamb, bitter herbs and unleavened bread. Then they would sing the first half of the Hallel Psalms, which is Psalms 113 through 114. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> and uh, I'm not going to recite all of those. You can look them up. You can see how they would be related, related. Then the prayer over the second cup. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has created the fruit of the vine. And then Exodus chapter 6, verse 6b, I will deliver you from their bondage. Then the second hand washing. This hand washing is done out of respect for the unleavened bread that is about to be eating. Then the paschal lamb. Karaseth with vegetables and two of the unleavened bread wafers are served. Prayer over the bread by the Father. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with your commandments and commanded us to eat the unleavened bread. This was a command. And I'll get to that again. I'll, I'll, re I'll repeat this. The, the, se the celebration of the Lord's Supper is not a suggestion. It is, it is a command from the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul reminds the Corinthians of that. But the command was to celebrate it the way that the Lord had intended, not the way it had become, not how it had become. The host, then the breaking of the bread. The host breaks the guest of honor's bread, and they dip it together in the caroseth and bitter herbs. The guest, in turn, breaks his neighbor's bread, and they dip it together, and so on down the line. Uh, the meal now may be eaten. After drinking the second, second cup of wine that has already been drunk, they may now be drunk non-ritually. Then the third cup, the prayer and consumption of the third cup. This is the cup that is spoken of, and we will get to in verse 25, uh, that Jesus used when he gave his blessing to the disciples. After the meal, the third cup is poured. The last of the unleavened bread wafers is blessed, broken, and eaten. And the prayer is, Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with your commandments and commanded us to eat unleavened bread. All participants recite the post-meal grace together, and then the prayer over the wine. The name of the Lord be blessed from now until eternity. Let us bless him of whose gifts we have partaken. Blessed be our God of whose gifts we are partaken, and by whose goodness we exist. The parallels to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross are obvious. It is his sacrifice that causes us to continue. It is his sacrifice, the gift that he gave, that we partake of, that makes us children of the Most High. And the Corinthians knew this. They knew this. 
then the father recites the third verb from Exodus 6, 6, 6. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with great drug and with great judgments, reminding them of the, uh, the ten plagues of, uh, against Pharaoh. Then the wine is drunk, the no and then now no non-ritual wine may be drunk between the third and the fourth cup. Uh, the fourth cup and the final Hallel Psalms, the fourth cup of wine is poured and blessed by all. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has created the fruit of the vine. Then the Father recites the fourth verb from Exodus 6, 6 and 7. Then, Scripture says, I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Psalms 115 through 118 are now sung as a closing hymn. And interesting, I think that may very well be what the hymns that were referred to that Jesus and the disciples sang. I actually listed these out, but we're not going to read them. Um, but if you want to look at them, they're, they're interesting. It's very, very clear how they relate to the Exodus. So, why did I go through this whole thing? <laughs> this, the Passover meal that Jesus ate with the disciples was not just a quick hamburger, some fries, and a pop. It took hours. It would have taken quite a while. And every bit of significance that could have been poured into that meal would have been given by the Lord Jesus, I believe. Now, that's my interpretation. That's my suggestion. It's not in the text. Secondly, the Corinthians would have been taught this by Paul when he came that, for that 18-month period. Other, other apostles that came, Apollos, all of the people who taught in Corinth. The Corinthians, there would have been no excuse for their meals to have devolved into such a state where they were clicking up and harming one another at a meal that was designed to be a unifying meal, a blessed, a blessed unifying meal. So, any comments or questions about verse 23? Okay. And when he had given thanks, so verse 23 says, we'll go clear back to that, for I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus in the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, with all of that significance in the history of the Jews, Jesus told the disciples that the bread that was partaken of in the Passover meal, this Passover meal, was his body. He was giving that bread for the disciples to partake of it in the same way the significance given by the Lord and reiterated by Paul here was that the body of the Lord Jesus Christ would be given for the elect, the church. Each disciple was given a piece of the original loaf, and in the same way, each and every believer has the Lord Jesus residing in them. It, it would have been and still is a very solemn ceremony. The Corinthians had prostituted it into debauchery and selfishness. They could not help but see it, the irony in Paul's words, here especially when he quotes the Lord Jesus Christ Jesus gave, the Corinthians were taking. When Jesus said, this is my body, he was saying, this represents my body. He was standing right there, so it was very clear that he was not holding his body in his hands. The command to do this, quote, do this, unquote, is in the present continuous tense. And from this, and from subsequent activities of the church, and from what Paul is delivering to us, as to the Corinthians and to us, it is clear that uh, the church was to continue celebrating the Lord's Supper. We take it to mean that this is an ordinance to be continued. Earlier, we, just, we, just, we discussed the concepts... <coughs> excuse me.
excuse me, of unconsubstantiation, transubstantiation, and the Zwinglian view that the elements simply represent a symbol of Christ. Now, while the bread and the wine are certainly not the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, they do represent more than just a memorial. They are a tie for us to that event 2,000 years ago when Christ, on the night before man was going to attempt to destroy him, purchased the elect by allowing his body to be hung on the cross and his blood to be spilled in payment for the sins of the church. And it's those things that should have been sobering the Corinthians into a meal of sharing, a meal of unification. But they had just forgotten them. They had just ignored them. I don't know all the things that we can do as people to, to misuse what Scripture gives us. We can forget it. We can ignore it. We can twist it. Whatever that was happening, the, the Corinthians were doing that. And they were not doing it in service to one another. Comments on verse 24? Questions? And then verse 25. And we referred to that earlier about the, the third cup. In the same way, he took the cup also after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Notice, please, that he didn't say, My blood is in this cup, or in this cup is my blood. He said, In this cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. There were four cups, again, served during the Passover meal. They were I missed a, a post there, sorry. The cup of sanctification, based on God's statement, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The second cup, the cup of judgment or deliverance, based on God's statement, I will deliver you from slavery to them. The third cup, and the one that is being referenced here, the cup of redemption, based on God's statement, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And then the fourth cup, the cup of praise or restoration, based on God's statement, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. The cup that Jesus is referring to here in verse 25, where he says, in the same way he took the cup, Paul says, in the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, and then this is Paul quoting the Lord Jesus, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Uh, the Lord Jesus clearly states that this represents the new covenant, which is sealed in his blood. Again, his blood is still in his body at this point, but the reference to the covenant harks back to the covenant God made with Abram. It is more than a covenant of grace replacing a covenant of works. This is the covenant that all of the Old Testament points to. All of the Old Testament shadows mentioned in the book of Hebrews point to. They point to this redemption. While the Passover remembered the Exodus and the deliverance through the Red Sea, the Lord's Supper remembers the cross and the Savior who, Savior who hung on that cross to purchase our redemption. In this sense, it is more than just a simple. No, there's no blood in the, in the cup and there's no body in the bread. But our Lord is whom we are remembering. Imagine the significance of a, of a family celebrating a toast at a wedding. Multiply this by a, a thousand or a million. And you have a, a semblance of the significance of the remembrance that occurs during the Lord's Supper. Every Lord's Supper. Every believer is commanded to practice the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Clearly, the Lord Jesus intended for His church to continue to celebrate this, and that is seen in the quote Paul gives us where the Lord Jesus said, Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. The words do this are a command. This is not an option. Obedient Christians will celebrate the Lord's Supper with some regularity. The idea of remembrance is more than just a memory. 
it is to, as much as possible, go back in your mind and recapture the significance of an event. Now, it's much easier to do that today because of our digital era. We can record events and revisit them regularly, visually, auditorially. In, in, in ancient times, they had to create the significance by the traditions that occurred. There's nothing wrong with traditions. It's just wrong when traditions replace uh, biblical teaching, biblical theology, and, and, uh, what's, and the Lord Jesus' words. And he talked about that when, interestingly enough, there was a tradition where they would, a firstborn would set aside his money for his parents' care. They called that korban. And the, the, the teaching, the, the tradition was a good one. But the misuse of it, setting the money aside so the boy could keep the money from his parents and use it after they died, that was a, that was a misuse of the tradition. So traditions are not the problem. Often it's the way we keep them. And when we allow the tradition to, allow, to assume more significance than the person, the tradition is the Lord's Supper. The person is the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, it's, it's not the case with Christ's sacrifice on the cross that uh, it's, an, it's a difficult one to remember. Nevertheless, the words of Scripture are memorable and luminous enough to give us the details of that blessed event so that we can remember it as we celebrate the Lord's Supper in, in these days. The covenant that Jesus is referencing, by the way, was spoken of in Jeremiah. Behold... Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. The Corinthians had this law within them. And on their heart I will write it. It was written on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. The covenant replaces the Mosaic covenant. Hebrews 8, 8 through 13. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant Paul is quoting, Jeremiah, which or, or, whoever wrote, boy, there was a Freudian slip, wasn't it? Whoever wrote Hebrews is quoting Jeremiah, not like the covenant which I made with them and their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. Significance to the Passover meal, from the least to the greatest, from the paterfamilias all the way down to the servant. <coughs> For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he, had said, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. And then Hebrews chapter 9, 18 through 28. Boy, that looks weird, doesn't it? Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. 
4. When every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. Jesus, his was the blood of the new covenant. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. But the heavenly things themselves were better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. The Corinthians should have been eagerly awaiting him. And at this meal, it should have been forefront in their minds that Christ is returning, and it wasn't. And so they were taking, again, they were taking from one another, not giving. The sacrifices are done. Christ has offered himself once and for all, and this is what the Corinthians should have remembered. This is what we remember. This should indicate, it should initiate a solemnity that would remind them of the cost of their redemption. It should remind them that Christ came to be a servant to all, and that they should also serve one another. And I keep, I keep coming back to that. It's a simple theme, but it's, it's forefront in Christ's mind when he talks about he who would be first must be last, should be last, must be last. I came not to be served, but to be a servant to all. And the Corinthians were missing this. And so once you begin to miss the import and the basis for this most solemn of traditions, the rest of it is going to go away too. And so over the years, um, a tradition had developed where and I don't know, you know, you don't know how it came into, be, into being and, and how it, how it uh, fed upon itself as traditions will. But they would come to the, the Lord's Supper, bring food and eat it all and, and deny the poorest and, and uh, just treat each other in a manner that was seriously against what God intended for this meal. I'm grateful that we don't have that here at Kootenai. The, the, the Lord's Supper is a solemn time. It's a time of reflection. It's a time of remembrance. It's a time of blessing. It's a time of self-introspection. Uh, I guess that's repeating itself. It's a time of introspection. And this is what the Corinthians were missing. This is what Paul was... Remember in chapter 7, verse 1, where he talked about answering the questions that they had written to him about. You've asked me a bunch of questions. I'm paraphrasing now. And here are your answers. And then later, later he says... I shall rearrange, I'll arrange some of those other matters when I come. Apparently, some of the other matters were so serious that he felt he could only deal with them when he, when he actually met with them personally. This, to me, seems like it was a pretty serious matter. Paul deals with, deals with it through the Holy Spirit 
by reminding them of the night in which the Lord Jesus gave the command himself. He takes them back to what? The words of Christ. He takes them back to Scripture, is what, if you will. He gave them the Scripture, but he took them back to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I believe we read later on, Corinthians survived. The Corinthian church survived. I would, I would surmise that uh, this solemn lesson to them reminded them. And I, I, as I'm studying through it, I haven't gotten through the rest of the book, as you all know. I mean, I've read Corinthians, I don't know how many times in the last 40 years, but every time I dig into a book, it's like the first time I've ever read it. This is the best book in the Bible, by the way, right now. <laughs> anyway, any comments or questions about the Lord's Supper in general or, or this last verse? Anything you want to add, Jim, that I... It's a wondrous ceremony, and I, I confess to you that when I, when I celebrate it, I celebrate it knowing I, I just don't know all that's going on here. It's, that's been my whole Christian life, all however many decades I've been a Christian. I just marvel at what was done and how at the night before knowing what he was going to go through the next day, he took the time to spend a blessed amount of time with his disciples, comforting them, encouraging them, blessing them, giving them this remembrance that they could, they could celebrate year after year after year, day after day, month after month, reminding themselves of that time with him and what he had done for them and for all of mankind. And Paul wants the Corinthians to remember that. He wants them to remember that and to begin again being last serving one another, eating at home so that when they got to the meal, it would be easy to take, take steps that if you have to, to make it easy to serve one another. That's what Paul is telling them. That's what he's telling us today. Let's pray. Father, as we contemplate what you did through your son, by your son, on that day, those many years ago, we reflect back on it we reflect back on it daily, but also during a special time of remembrance when we, have, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. As we were commanded, do this in remembrance of me. Let it all be, always be in remembrance of the sacrifice, the giving, the blessing, the not taking that Jesus Christ himself did on our behalf so that we might take those by your Holy Spirit, those truths, and allow you to work them into our lives so that the works that you prepared in us before eternity became, will be evident that we are servants, that we are givers, we are not takers. Let us always be true and, and, uh, and live in fidelity to your word, though, unafraid to proclaim what the Lord has said. Well, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.